I'm going to tell you a little bit about a, an, an event that took place in the hallway, actually, a number of years ago. There was a guy who came to our church and wanted to talk to me after a service on a Saturday night. He wanted to speak with me um, in the hallway, and so I kind of hurried out from where I was. He was visiting the church. He was just traveling through, and he said he had a word from the Lord for us. Great. Went out into the hallway, and uh, he, when I first saw him, I was surprised. Really big guy, right? Like lot, lots of muscles, totally skipped leg day, but he was big, big dude, okay? Um, so he's, he's talking to some other people at the time. When he saw me, he turned and he shook my hand. You know, one of those handshakes, you're like, oh, I think I broke a few bones in my hand because of that. And he started to talk. He said, okay, he was very excited. He said, listen, I got to tell you that that I feel the Lord is telling, telling me to share with you that I, I am, I'm a nutritionist, I'm involved with all of this nutrition stuff, and I'm really involved in, in you know, having Christians be healthy people. And one of the things that I have been burdened about recently, and so I'm sharing this with you, Pastor, and other pastors in the region, is that there are great dangers in aspartame, that you shouldn't be drinking, as God does not want you to drink aspartame or Things with aspartame. Now, I have to tell you, at this very moment that he was saying that, in my right hand, I had a Coke Zero, because I drink Coke Zero all the time. And I had it in my right hand, and he said those words, and I thought, oh dear, what do I do? So on the one hand, I'm thinking, oh, I, I probably should just tuck that away behind my back and just have him share more about this and see, try to get out of the conversation as soon as I can without him seeing it. Or I could do the kind of thing that Jeff Buckham tends to do, and that is take it, lift it to my face, open it up, and start to drink. Uh, and I, I did the second <laughs> while he was talking. And I drank it, and I said, so tell me more. So is that the way you should handle that, that kind of thing? Because what, what we're talking about here is what we call in, in, the, in the history of the Christian church what we call a disputable matter. A disputable matter is um, a matter of conscience about which God hasn't specifically spoken in his word. And there's no, there's no passage of scripture. There's no 11th commandment, thou shalt not aspartame. There's the, you won't find that. He hasn't clearly forbidden it, but he also hasn't clearly commanded it. And you can understand the rationale, though, of somebody who comes along. I don't want to you know, dismiss our brother for, for feeling this way, because you can understand his rationale. His rationale is, look, if, if you're a Christian, uh, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, according to Scripture. And if the body is a temple of the Holy, Holy Spirit, you have, um, you have stewardship over that body, and you don't want to put anything into the temple of the Holy Spirit that is going to be harmful to you. You want to do the best practices when it comes to being a steward of your body. Therefore, aspartame is not one of those things, so God doesn't like aspartame. You can see the reasoning, right? And yet you won't find, that's, that's like an extension from a biblical concept that has gone two, three, four levels later, and... You won't find that command in, in the Bible. So there are people who would hold one view on that and others who would hold another view on that. Some would say aspartame's great. It helped me with my keto. And other people would say keto's evil, right? Those, that's what God thinks, by the way. Anyway, um, <laughs> right? But which, does this guy speak for God? Which side speaks for God? What is his will 
in these circumstances around disputable matters. I'll give you another example. Uh, this is a dated one, but those of you who've been around the Christian church for a lot of years might remember something like this. There was a period of time in the Christian church where going to movies was not a good idea. Uh, in the early 1970s, I had a friend who was in a youth ministry. He was, or he was a student in the early 1970s or mid-70s, and uh, he went to a movie one night with his girlfriend and a few of their friends. He said, I think it was Jaws or something, right? So he goes to this movie. He watches the movie. He comes home, goes to sleep, gets up in the morning and goes to church. Back in those days during the church service, the high school kids would go and do a kind of a youth ministry thing at the same time that the church was meeting. So he went downstairs with his girlfriend and with some of the people who went to the movie the night before. And when they got there, the youth pastor was standing in front of all of them and started to read off names that he wanted to come forward. And every name that he read off was a name of a person who had gone into the, has gone into the movie the night before to go watch Jaws. And so they all came forward, and he, the youth pastor said, do you have anything you need to share with the rest of us? And they were like, uh, no. Where were you last night? Well, we were just hanging out. No, you weren't just hanging out. I was sitting in the parking lot of the movie theater, and I was writing down the names of the students in our town who were going to the movies on that particular day. Is there something that you need to repent of in front of all of us? So this youth pastor believed that going to the movies was, was evil because the things that are portrayed in the movies, like fish eating people. I mean, I think that's in the Bible. Anyway, um, <laughs> that that's bad. Okay? And some of you remember days like that. Some of you rejected the Christian faith because of days like that. Like, I'm not going to a church or going to believe in a religion that bars me from watching Indiana Jones. Is that the way that the youth pastor should have handled it? Does he speak for God? And more broadly, how should we handle disputable matters in the church? There's so many of them, as you'll see. Well, Romans 14 actually talks about this, talks about these matters of conscience about which God hasn't specifically spoken in his word, and gives us some indications for how, how it is that we can remain peaceful as a Christian community where people have different opinions on these things. So how do we do that? And Paul's going to give you three steps in Romans 14. This is the first of two sermons on this subject. The next week, we're going to have the second part, so I'm not going to finish everything today, but there are three parts to what he says in Romans 14 today. Number one, you need to accept one another. You want to live at peace with one another. You need to accept one another. Number two, you need to worship your way. And third, you need to stay in your lane. Accept one another, worship your way, and stay in your lane. Those will be kind of the hooks that we hang our thoughts on here, right? So here's the first of those. Romans 14, verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak. You can see where I get the title, accept one another. Except the one whose faith is weak. Mark that phrase, faith is weak. We want to know what that means. Without quarreling over disputable matters, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. A little bit of historical background to this. The Roman church was filled with two distinctly, distinct kind of people. There were the Gentile people who came from a background of pagan idol worship. 
And they came to faith in Christ from that. And then there were the Jewish people who came from the background of Judaism. Now, you know, if you know anything about Judaism, you'll know that there is such a thing as a Jewish calendar. And there are certain days in the Jewish calendar that are seen as holy, the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur, this is the Jewish New Year. You have all sorts of days and festivals throughout the year. Passover would be one of them. There's a day of the week that is held apart as being holy and special, the, the Sabbath, and it starts on, at sundown on Friday and goes to sundown on Saturday, and you're not supposed to work in that time, and so rabbis throughout the centuries have tried to figure out what does it mean not to work, what can you do, what can't you do, and they tried to delineate exactly what that means. So there are lots of special days. If you came from a Jewish background and you celebrated that Jewish calendar and you came to faith in Christ, you would expect that we would continue to celebrate some of those calendar days and treat them as holy and not work on the Sabbath or the Lord's Day now. Similarly, those people used to eat certain things and not eat other things. If you were Jewish and growing up, that way you wouldn't eat pork. It was condemned in the Old Testament law. So my breath right now smells like bacon because we had it between our services. <laughs> like I, That's anathema. You, should, you shouldn't eat pork. You shouldn't also... I eat shellfish, right? So no lobster or crab or mussels, or it's probably a good thing. But you shouldn't also eat anything that's not prepared in a kosher manner. There's a lot of food laws. There's a lot of days that are held as special. And if you were a Jew and you came from that background, you would come into Christian faith and you would expect that if, if you really wanted to honor God, you should still keep that stuff. You should still not eat certain things. You, you should be like Daniel, who went into a culture in Babylon where they wanted him to eat meat, and he said, no, I'm just going to eat vegetables, and God will prosper me there. That's the way we ought to be in a world that's not Jewish. We should, we should trust God to provide for us while we keep those old food laws. And so you can understand, if you come into, the, into a church and, and the, the guy sitting next to you is a Gentile, and he smells like bacon-wrapped scallops. You're, you're like, what is going on here? And he ate all of that while working on the Sabbath. You don't know, what? What would you do? And you know what you'd do. You'd go home later that afternoon, and you'd say, did you smell that dude? Like lobster, like he stinks like shellfish. And you would look down on him. You'd make judgments about him. And so Paul calls people, these, these Jewish believers who are still holding on to that older mindset, he calls them weak in faith. Here's what he means by that. Doug Moo, in his commentary on, on Romans, he says it really well. He says, Paul isn't criticizing people for having weak or inadequate trust in Christ as their Savior and Lord. Rather, he's criticizing them for lack of insight into some implications of their faith in Christ. These are Christians who aren't able to accept for themselves that their faith in Christ implies liberation, freedom, from certain Jewish ritual requirements. So they're weak in faith because they don't see how far the gospel has gone to take away some of those ritual requirements in the past. And they're still exerting judgment on everyone else for something that has been done away with, where others have freedom. So they have disputable, the Roman church was divided over disputable matters. And you're listening to this and thinking, yeah, but what does that have to do? Like, I don't care if somebody eats bacon. 
I don't care if you have pork chops or scallops or didn't, you know, it, it didn't eat kosher foods. What, what does that have to do with us today? What kind of disputable matters do we deal with? You ready for this? I got a list. All right? So I'll, I'll give you one at the front end here. Um, it's a little bit obscure. When, I was, when we first had our, our children, uh, we realized very quickly that the hardest thing to do was to get them to sleep. For some reason, I remember praying to God and saying, Lord, why have you not made it so that they have like a timer? That they just, you can just shut them off for a period of time and then they go to sleep for 10 hours and then they wake up the next day, right? That would have been a, a kind grace on your part, but he doesn't. And so you're up. And so one of the biggest challenges you have is trying to figure out how am I going to get this little person to go to bed and sleep? Well, there was a book out when, I was, when we were first having our kids. There was a book out that was all the rage among Christians. It was called Growing Kids God's Way. Just want you to think about the title of that. It was about how to get your kids to sleep. And apparently, according to the book, there was a God's way to do this. Did you know this? That the Bible teaches that you need to let your kids cry it out because, according to one section in the book, God let Jesus cry it out on the cross. Not kidding about that. Now, people we knew had picked up this book and said, it really works and it's amazing and it really is God's way and this is the way you should approach this whole thing. And so I picked it up and was like, oh, I, I want to do it God's way. And I remember reading this book and telling my wife, we have to let them cry it out, you know, and the, my son's in the other room screaming for an hour, and she's like, I just want to pick him up. Don't touch him. That's not what God wants, you know? Like, and you, and the page, finally, she picked the child up, and Ethan up, and walk into the other room and say, see, see, he's fine. And he'd be like, eh, right? I eventually, that's the book I've told you before. That's the book I burned, and I threw in the backyard somewhere, okay? But do, do you hear the idea? There were some Christians in the church who were saying, listen, if you really want to do it God's way, you will let them cry it out. And other people were like, really? It seems like it's okay for me to pick the child up. Disputable matter. It's not clearly stated in Scripture. There's no second opinions for six that tells us, let them cry it out. Thou shalt let them cry. It's not there. So what do we do? I'll give you some more. These are ones that I've heard over the years, my 30-some years of being a Christian. Um, I've heard about people's viewpoints on having children. Uh, you, of course, know that the earth is filled with a population that it probably can't sustain at this particular time. Although, if you drive through Saskatchewan, you're like, really? <laughs> I don't know. But... It, Overpopulation is a challenge and the pressing on resources. And so there are those who are saying, look, if we're going to be good stewards of the planet, which is what God has called us to be, then we need to limit the number of children that we have. And I know that go forth and multiply, but haven't we multiplied enough? Enough already. So let's not multiply anymore for the sake of the planet. What God would have us do in our stewardship is not to have any more kids. That's God's way. And the rest of us are like, well, I don't know. Like, I like kids, and I think that having more kids is lovely, and they're like, you know, arrows in a quiver, and they'll be blessing in your old age. Doesn't the Bible say that as well? So which one is God's way? Who speaks for God in that situation? How about schooling? Did you know that if you send your kids to public school and hand them over to the government in order to educate them. You're handing them over to people whose worldview doesn't match yours, who don't believe in Christianity, and are going to turn your kids away from God. 
Did you know that the best way for you to handle these things is for you to take your kids, bring them home, and, and, and educate them there. Even the Christian school, you can't guarantee the doctrine they're gonna learn. Do your parental duty before God and homeschool your children. And then in comes the person who's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like homeschool kids don't really, don't really associate all that well with other kids. It seems like their, their upbringing is brought d- different. So like we should send them to Christian school because that you get the best of both worlds. And then the public school people are walking in and saying, no, 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 if you take all of the Christian kids out of the public schools, nobody's gonna be reached with Christ, for Christ, right? So is that what God wants? Which is it? Well, it's one that I believe, we say. That's, that's God's way. That's the one that should be done. Should we eat sugar? I've had people speak to me in the last you know, few years, in fact, and saying that, you know what, sugar is actually a real problem. It's worse than aspartame which is probably why I drink the aspartame, right? But it's worse than aspartame because it causes all sorts of trouble and many of the diseases that we're dealing in the Western world from that. And so if you give your children sugar, aren't you basically leading them into a life of difficulty? Which is God's way. You should not eat sugar. People tell me you should preach on that. Don't eat sugar. It's a bad idea. If you want to do it God's way, you, you won't eat it. How about clothing costs? Did you know that every young adult alive in this area recently has been convinced by the devil that blundstones are what they need to wear? <laughs> you know what blundstones are? Blundstones are these shoes that in New Zealand they use for farmers, but here apparently if you're 22 years old, you have to wear blundstones in order to be cool and accepted by Jesus. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. So, they're 250 bucks a pop. What? Like you can fly to Los Angeles for the same price as you buy Blundstones. Is it, is it God's will that you spend $250 on a pair of shoes, or is it God's will that you buy a pair of Kodiaks for $50? Right? Which is God's way? There's an, there's an internet, uh, an Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers that actually takes pictures of people doing what I'm doing right now, preaching, and showing the shoes that they wear. And some of the people preaching are wearing like $2,000 pair of Nikes. And so the, the, kind of the understood implication is, should the pastor be wearing $2,000 pair, pair of Nikes? Like, is that really what God would want? Which is it? Should, should you or shouldn't you? Or how about, um, how about your, how, your car you drive? I remember Chuck Swindoll, who is a famous pastor. He was the president of the seminary I attended. I remember he drove every day and he parked in the same spot with his, with his uh, BMW convertible, green BMW convertible, beautiful car. I remember students walking by that car and just standing there shaking their head and saying, how dare he? How dare he? It is a sin, I've heard some say, even pastors, it is a sin for you to drive a BMW in a world that suffers from such great need. Is it? What about a Toyota? Is that a, or do you, does everybody need to drive a really cruddy GMC? Like, is that what, like, like Jesus would be driving the Chevy? Or, or, or what about
about the house. I heard some guy tell me one time, I don't think that God would want anyone to have a house that's larger than 2,000 square feet. Really? Okay, yeah, in solid, his reasoning was in solidarity with the world's support. You know, so many people don't live in spaces like that. You don't need more than 2,000 square feet. So you can build one that's 1,999.9999 square feet and be on God's good side, but if you go past the 2,000, God is not happy with you. That extra room is where the devil dwells. <laughs> is it? Thou shalt not build such a big house. How about alcohol? This is one of the famous ones. You do realize what happens when people drink alcohol, right? I mean, they get inebriated and all sorts of horrible things happen. Police officers say if we stop drinking alcohol, probably wouldn't have much of a job. And you're in, ingesting that alcohol and putting yourself in a situation that could lead you to some kind of sin. God doesn't want you to do that, they say. You can't worship God by drinking alcohol. How about playing football? Some of you are like, what? Okay, recently an article appeared by a very well-known Christian publisher online saying that what should we do about the fact that we know that CTE, which is brain injuries in later life, is a, is a, is a definite result of children playing football and hitting their heads over and over again. Because if you think about it, you know, football, we say, here's a piece of plastic we're going to place on your head. Don't worry, it'll be fine. You bash your head against that other guy with the piece of plastic, and if you do it over and over again for 30 years, you'll be fine. But it's not. It's not happening. When they're in their 40s and 50s, these guys don't remember their names. They get lost in the middle of nowhere, don't know where they live or who they're married to, and they eventually die because of the horrible headaches. If you put your child in football, are you not somehow complicit in leading to their, their destitution later in their life? Is that what God would have you, father and mother, do? which is God's way. How about yoga? Here we go. How, how about, did you know that, when you, that yoga comes from a, a Hindu background and the poses themselves are formed in worship to particular gods and goddesses? You know when you're doing those things that you're actually guilty of worshiping the devil, they say? And if you do it hot, that's just more like hell, right? <laughs> And you're like, no, but I go, when I, I don't ever think about the demon when I'm doing that particular thing. I'm stretching and then sometimes I pray, nah, not to Jesus. Yeah, to Jesus, not nah, to a devil. <laughs> so which is it? Which, which, is, which is God's way? And if you send your children out for Halloween, right? If you send your kids out for Halloween, are you participating in the deeds of darkness? Have you sent them out into a world that is going to influence their thinking so that they come back with Ouija boards and stuff? Or... Or, on the other hand, should you actually engage in Halloween because it's like one of the most hospitable holidays we have? What other time do you have kids knocking on your door saying, give me candy? <laughs> if, if that happens a lot, you live in a weird neighborhood. But like, it, when, when else? Shouldn't you be friendly and kind to that? And let me finish all this by mentioning Santa, right? <laughs> Did you know that if you rearrange the letters in Santa... <laughs> You think that's a coincidence, do you? <laughs> he takes away the attention from Jesus. 
The Easter bunny takes away the attention from Jesus. We should rid ourselves of any of those sorts of things. Right? Which is it? Which is it? Which is, which is God's way? And the thing you need to understand here is that you can actually be weak in faith and strong in faith depending at the same time. It just differs with the issue. Right? So, so there, somebody might be strong in faith in the sense that they say, no, Santa's, Santa's great. I can still worship Jesus and celebrate this cultural phenomenon around this fat guy who hands gifts out. But there's no way that you can do yoga. See, you can, depends on the issue. So how should Christians then act toward each other over such disputable matters? And Paul gets really clear, verse three. He started by saying, accept one another. And what he means by that is the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. The strong one, the one who eats everything, should not treat with contempt the weak one, the one who does not. And the one who does not eat, the weak one, must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. You notice there's a difference in the verbs that are used with how these people treat each other. The strong, when they deal with the weak, they treat them with contempt. And the weak, when they deal with the strong, they judge. And that's how it works. If I have freedom to do a particular thing and I find out that you don't, here's what I do. (laughs) Really? You don't have freedom to do that? (laughs) Okay. Okay. The the language there, the verb itself, means to reject with disdain. I was in North Carolina this last uh, couple weeks ago with one of our elders and uh, Mark Birch, one of our pastors, and I kept bringing up that we should be going to Waffle House. If you've never been to Waffle House in the south, southern part of the United States, Waffle House is an institution. It's up to open 24 hours. It's largely terrible, but it is, you have to go. I, in fact, I remember going to Waffle House in Atlanta, Georgia on one occasion, and I sat down and said, what should we have here? And the guy who was serving us says, man, I don't eat here, right? <laughs> so that's Waffle House. <laughs> but come on, you're in the south. You have to eat Waffle House. That's part of the deal. It's like coming to Canada and Tim Hortons. You have to have it. So we're with, with these guys, and every time they say, where should we eat? I'm like, Waffle House. We should go to Waffle House. We're not going to Waffle House. Why not? Because, ew, Waffle House. I'd rather go to Chick-fil-A. You know, like you're eating some amazing meal there at Chick-fil-A, and it's not Waffle. That attitude, though, is just a disdainful flat rejection, who would ever eat at Waffle House? Who would ever do, who would ever not do yoga? Who would ever not want to drink, who would ever want to drink alcohol? Like that's the way that we tend to, tend to view those people who have freedom, tend to view those who don't have freedom. You can see it even the way that we respond to the list that I gave. We laugh at somebody who might not have the freedom to do those kinds of things. And Paul says you should not reject with disdain. You should not treat with contempt those who don't have the freedom. But on the flip side, those who don't have the freedom tend to want to judge those who do. And you know what I mean by judge there. Like put themselves in the, in the seat of God and say, this is the way it should be. Thou shalt not. Because it's my conviction, it's everybody's conviction. Isn't that really what the guy's doing when he lines all the, the, the youth up at the Sunday service and says, you know what, you guys went and saw Jaws and therefore 
it's wrong because God doesn't like fish that eat people, right? But Jonah. But, and <laughs> I see things the way that God sees them. And Paul's convinced, see, listen, whichever category you fit in, in whichever issue, don't treat with contempt or don't judge. In fact, verse four, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. I remember going to my friend's house in, uh, years ago. I was visiting New Zealand after moving here, went back, and I, he had a little, they had a little boy, and I was sleeping in the same room as their, as their little boy was. He was, I don't know, 15, 15, 14 months old. He's in his crib. I just remember him standing up at the edge of his crib and staring at me all night, you know? It's very freaky. I'm gonna get you. Um, but I had kids about the same age, and I remember uh, thinking to myself, oh, he's so cute. And so whenever he'd wake up and stare at me and stuff, I'd go over and play with him and pick him up, because that's what we did. You remember? We burned the book. So I'm picking the kid up all the time. And so uh, I remember going out of the room and went after an hour of playing with him and saying, hey, look who's up. And the parents were like, what are you doing? Why do you have him in your arms? Put him back down. Put him back where you found him. Oh, okay. You know, and I put him back in the room, and then he would stand and sit and look at me for the next hour. I remember my friend Brad came in and said, listen, I don't mean to be, we didn't mean to be short with you. It's just that, you know, we have a particular way that we want to do these things, and it's a little bit weird for you to come into our house with our kids and start to parent them in the way that you would do it with yours. And he was right. If I came into your house, and your kids were playing a video game, and I walked in front of it, and I, in, in righteous justice, kicked that Xbox, ah! The Lord is free, is free to move in this house now because the evil Xbox is done. You have way too much screen time, you children. Get outside and dig a hole, you know? <laughs> you would probably be like, mm, actually, Jeff, you need to not do that because this isn't, this is, they're not your kids. This is what Paul's basically trying to say. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? We stand before God. He's, he's our father. He's the one who has the right to determine for us which one is right and which is wrong for us. So accept one another, number one. I know that was the longest piece. These next two are a bit quicker because now that we've established the basis for it, it all kind of flows. The second thing he says is worship your way. Look at verse five. One person considers one day more sacred than the other, right? Day of atonement or Sabbath. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their mind. You do you. Do you love that? What do you, what do you feel is the best thing for you and your family? Okay, that's what you should do. Be fully convinced in your own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. And they, they give thanks to God. The strong are worshiping God through their strength and through the freedoms they have. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Those who are weak are worshiping God through their convictions. Both are worshiping. For none of us lives to ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. So we answer to him. Not to your neighbor. For it, this very reason, Christ died and returned so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So in other words, listen, if you have a conviction about one of these disputable matters, awesome. Live that way. Worship God that way. But the moment you take that conviction and you start to express it on everyone else and principalize it and make it the way that the Lord would have everyone act, that's when you're crossing the line. 
Because you can worship your way. You can worship God either way. And you have to ask a question at this point thinking, really, can you? Like, like how do you worship God by watching movies? Because there are some people who will say, no, you can't. I'm going to worship God by not going to the movie. And by the way, that is absolutely legitimate. You don't have to go and watch that, that movie. You don't have to. You can say, in, in honor of God and what he calls us to in holiness, I'm not going to go and watch that movie. But somebody else could go and watch that movie, and they could worship God by engaging that film, by comparing what's being said in that film to the worldview they know in Christianity so that they can engage it more publicly with other people and talk about it. This is the way Christians for centuries have, have dealt with art, not by always turning their eyes away, but by looking and engaging and comparing it to the Christian worldview wrote a doctorate about it. You can worship God this way. You know, you, you can worship God by not going to yoga. That's awesome. I'm not going to go because of its history or background. I'm not going to go and do Halloween because of its history and background. We're not going to celebrate Santa because of its history and background. Fine. Totally cool. But you can worship God by going to the yoga and praying to Jesus during the stretching. You can. You can go on Halloween and not worship the demons. You can Welcome people into your home. You can welcome the children on your street in the spirit of hospitality, praying for those who come to see them come to faith in Christ and celebrating. And this is one of those events during the time that the entire community gets together in some weird way and wants to be welcoming to each other on some level. You can worship either way. And that's Paul's point. You do you. Worship your way. And finally, he really does. He comes to this big point is really at the end here. And I summarized it by saying, stay in your lane. Here's what he says. You then, verse 10, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. It's not your job to judge your brother and sister. The answer to God now, I want to pause there for just a second as we finish here. <laughs> that's, that's actually difficult to accept because there's another passage in the, in, in the New Testament that talks about how we actually should judge our brothers and sisters. So what's the difference? Let me show you the one where it says that we should judge our brothers and sisters. It's in 1 Corinthians 5. What's going on in the background there is that a, a son in the church actually is sleeping with his mother, his stepmother. And the church is like, woohoo, freedom in Christ, baby! And Paul's like, What? So he responds, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 2. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a, and of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? You should have kicked him out of the church, man. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but I didn't mean the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. See, in that case, you'd have to leave the world. I'm not talking about people who are not Christians, he says. But verse 11, now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, anyone who claims to be a Christian, but who is sexually immoral or greedy or idolater or slander or drunkard or swindler. Don't even eat with such people. What business is it of mine, he says, to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? What's the assumed answer? Yeah. Are you not to judge those inside? Yes, God will judge those outside. So expel the wicked brother or wicked person from among you. It's your responsibility 
to judge these people and to pass church discipline on them so that they can return to the fold in righteousness. So which is it? Should we judge our brothers and sisters or not judge our brothers and sisters? Should we 1 Corinthians 5? What's the difference between 1 Corinthians 5 and Romans 14? And here's the answer. One, Romans 14, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 5, one is a clear sin with direct biblical support, sexual immorality. It's a clear sin with direct biblical support. And the other is a disputable matter without clear biblical commands. What day you celebrate, what kind of food you can eat. In the case of the latter, the disputable issues, you've got to let people be because you're not their judge. God is. But you, listen, we hate that because like with most judges and umpires and referees in our world, we say to ourselves, I have a better view than you. I actually can offer some advice to you, oh God, oh great referee in the sky, I can offer advice to you that will actually help you make this judgment if you just see it my way. I have a friend actually who was telling me a story, it's kind of a famous story about baseball circles, about this pitcher who goes out and he starts throwing the first pitch of the game. The catcher is ready to catch, play ball, they say, and the pitcher throws the pitch, boom, straight down, right in the middle of the strike zone. And the umpire says, nothing. So the catcher takes the ball and hands it to the umpire and says, can I have a different ball? The umpire says, okay. Gives him another ball, throws it back to the pitcher. Second pitch, boom, straight down the middle of the plate. And the umpire says, nothing. The catcher takes the ball, hands it up to him and says, "Uh, can I have a different ball? The umpire's like, what? Okay, yeah, he gives him another ball, throws it back to the pitcher. Third pitch, boom, straight down the middle of the strike zone. The umpire says, nothing. Catcher takes the ball, hands it to the umpire and says, can I have a different ball? And the umpire said, all right, why do you need another ball? What's wrong with this one? He said, I just need one you can see. <laughs> well, that's the way that we view most things, isn't it? Well, listen, our, my, my vantage point on these matters, God, is way better than yours. You could probably use my help in terms of giving you some advice. I was a coach of an AAU basketball team at one point in the States. That's like a, it's like a select team, a rep team. And I was coaching grade nine kids in AAU. Uh, we were a pretty good team, and I'm, I'm a, I was a vocal coach. And one game, the referee was just not giving us any calls in the first part of it. And so every time he would run by, I'd say, man, you need to not quit your day job. Uh, you're much better than this. You look able-bodied to me. Surely this is something you can get better at, right? Maybe you need to go some training. I actually, at one point, offered him the glasses of a friend. Hey, here you go. Finally, he turned to me, and he said, hey, Jeff. And he knew my name because he was kind of a friend. He turned to me and said, hey, Jeff, why don't you coach why don't you coach and I'll referee? You got it? And I said, oh, I got it. And he turned around and I said, just let me know when you start. <laughs> mm. He turned around, you're out. That's the way we tend to view it though, isn't it? Lord, if you just asked me my opinion about these matters, I could help you understand why that person shouldn't be doing that freedom and why that person should, should be having it. I can determine these things for you. There's a woman who was a leader in our youth group who uh, my, my, my pastor, Ken Hutcherson, years ago, he used, to, he used to call her four. Her last name was Fours, but she used to call her four. And uh, he used to say, the reason I call her four is because she, she thinks she's the fourth member of the Trinity, right? 
And she'd tell, call her four all the time to her face, and she'd giggle about it. And he'd say, listen, she just thinks God needs her help. And I gotta tell you, a lot of us think God needs our help. And what Paul's saying is he doesn't. He doesn't. You can let people be. You can let them have their freedom. It's not our job to judge our brothers and sisters over disputable matters. That's God's job. He's better at it than we are. So, stay in your lane. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for your grace. And I'm thankful, Father, that your word speaks so bluntly about so many of these issues. Again, Father, this is the first part of two. There are important ways that the strong need to treat the weak with charity and kindness and welcome and not leading them into sin. So I pray, Father, that this will be pinned together. This sermon will be pinned together with the next one in the minds of people. But let us not lose the emphasis here. Uh, we tend to enthrone our opinions and treat other people with disdain because they don't have them or judge them because they don't have them. So, Father, I pray that we would not do so, that we would love our brothers and sisters. And as people who have experienced the grace of Christ, may we pass that grace on to others. And may our church be a place where grace is enthroned. We pray it, Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.